That said, um, let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're going to look at one verse there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 15. And tonight we're going to talk about socialism, which is the politics of fallen man. Last week we talked about humanism being the religion of fallen man. So we'll talk tonight about why socialism is the outcome of that. I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of every little thing and twist and turn regarding socialism, but um, you'll you'll, uh, see it as we go. So Exodus 20, verse 15. We'll start here. These are the words of God. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Pretty straightforward. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious God, we give thanks to you tonight because you are the giver of life. We have breath in our lungs because you have determined it to be so. We take great joy in knowing that you are the sovereign one who sustains us each and every day. Help us to know your word so that we may be wise to apply your word, especially in tumultuous times in our nation like this. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When it comes to humanism, which as we saw last week, that's the religion of fallen man. We need to keep in mind that the religion of fallen man is not in a vacuum. The religion of fallen man also has political components to it as well. Not only is the humanist a person who has religious convictions, um, he is also a person with political convictions as well. And since his religious convictions will always lead him to develop a system of man-centered political convictions, it follows quite naturally and logically that the humanist will pursue socialism as his social order, as his political order. Now the reason for this is because in his arrogance, the humanist has declared God to be dead. That's the first point. He has declared God to be dead. He's revolting against God's sovereignty. He's revolting against God himself. And as a result, he must declare that he himself, this humanist, is alive and well, and that he's the ultimate presupposition, thus removing God and then asserting himself as the sovereign. So think about it in these categories. Sovereignty presupposes jurisdiction, right? But jurisdiction requires a law order. See how that follows? Sovereignty presupposes jurisdiction, and jurisdiction requires a law order. However, the challenge for the humanist is this. In order for him to structure the world, he must develop a coherent social order that coincides with his newfound religious presuppositions. He simply has to do that. It's not a question of if, it's which, right? It's not, it's not a question of if he's going to develop some sort of outlook in the world, but it's the question of what is he going to develop? And he has to develop some sort of coherent social order that presupposes all of these other religious convictions that he has now found now that he's declared God to be dead. So since he hates God and he will not submit to him, he's now forced to relinquish and renounce individual liberty. So know this. Since he's rejected God and he will not submit to him, the humanist is now forced to relinquish and renounce individual liberty because 
here's our presupposition, only the transcendent and triune God of heaven grants a man individual liberty. Amen. Liberty comes from God. So man, man cannot grant another man liberty. Can't be done. He can only rule over him uh, or he can serve him. But listen, government does not grant freedom. Government does not grant freedom. It can only chip away at freedom and take it away altogether. It does not have the power, the jurisdiction, or the authority. The state is not given that, uh, that role in Scripture. He, they cannot give freedom. Ask, ask a police officer. I did this this summer at a fair. Where do our rights come from? And that was an interesting point of debate. Where do we get our rights? Where, how, do, how, how is it that you have the right to have private property and not have someone steal from you? How do you have those rights? Where do they come from? And most, many people today, especially walking in a college campus where there are a bunch of little socialists running around, they're going to say, well, the government gives me my rights. And that's a terrible way to live, as we'll see shortly. So only, governments do not grant people liberty and freedom. All they can do is chip away at it by regulations and overburdensome taxation. So, or, or the government can just take it away altogether. We went yesterday to the Holocaust Museum in, in D.C. Uh, that was my first time there. And A, it's, if you've never been, you should go. It's well done, for one. It takes a while, so pace yourself. But it tells the whole story of the rise to, of Hitler you know, when he was appointed chancellor and, and sort of how that all really went downhill very quickly. And, you know... Very fast, the Nazi regime was able to chip away and take away freedom and ultimately leading to, leading to the Holocaust itself. Now, the only way to answer what we call the dialectical problem of the one and the many, right? This is the, this is the one and the many. The individual's liberty over here, how do we balance that with the collective, the group, the, the whole of a group of people? The humanist, in order to do that, he has to follow um, the Hegelian model. That's Hegel. He, he was a philosopher, and Hegel eliminated one of those. He just did away with it. He figured the only way to get rid of this problem is to, we'll just get rid of one. So what did he do? Well, he helped pave the way for the elimination of individual liberty. So suddenly the collective take, took precedent over the individual. Now, as a, as a side note, Cross and crown, we are Vantillian. <laughs> so Vantill, who taught us very much so that all non-biblical thought is dialectical. In other words, all non-biblical philosophy and discussion and any of those things, all those thoughts are inherently problematic. They, they can't resolve the tensions that are out there, whether that's spirit, matter, and, and, and a whole host of other things. So Van Til said, really, Christianity is the only way to, to solve the dilemma, and here's why. Well, because God is one in many. In the Trinity, we have one God, three persons, and that's the starting point for, for everything. So if you reject that, you, you can't solve the problem between, for example, the individual and, and the collective. At any rate, because in his sin, man rejects the transcendency of God, he has to develop, he must develop his system from his own self-generated religious convictions. So never believe someone when they say they're not religious. Mm -hmm. 
So, so in order to do that, he, he chooses the collective, the group, the whole of everyone, as taking primacy over the individual. And this is because he hates liberty, and he hates the fact that liberty is gained from God, and God's law is what grants us liberty. Now notice, I did not say something wrong there. Many evangelicals can't get this straight. The humanist hates the liberty that God's law grants him. God's law word grants freedom. Not the other way around. The modern evangelical thinks it's slavery. It's oppressive. God was a big meanie head in the Old Testament. How dare he? That's the modern evangelical. But it's not true. The humanist hates the liberty that God's law grants to him. So rejecting God's law leads to tyranny, not freedom. We think it's freedom. We're getting rid of God. We're getting rid of the oppression. So what do we do? Do whatever you want. So this rejection doesn't actually liberate a man. It enslaves him. You see, tyranny in the world, tyranny exists because men would much rather have someone else do the governing than do the hard work and discipline of self-government. That's why tyranny exists. Tyranny exists in the world because men would rather not govern themselves. They would rather have somebody else do it. Now, when we talk about socialism, we would be remiss to leave out the picture of the most influential man behind the socialist vision, and that being communism's chief thinker, Karl Marx. Marx was a constantly quarreling wild donkey of a man. <laughs> All right, he, that's what uh, Ishmael was described in, in Genesis. Um, he spent his nights drinking. I'm getting a little biographical sketch here. He spent most of his nights drinking and talking, staying up all night. And also then he would spend his days sleeping on the couch in the clothes that he wore the previous day. So Marx, whose anger was a tremendous problem, he would often say to his opponents and people he didn't like, because if you crossed him, you were on that list. He would say, I will annihilate you. That was one of his that was one of his key phrases, I will annihilate you. Which is interesting coming from a man whose health was always a problem, who was always without personal hygiene, uh, and whose self-control was so lacking that he squandered money, the money that he borrowed from his family and friends. One time he pursued a job in his life. One time. He was a burly, surly curmudgeon whose ideas, once they got out there, most certainly led to the mass murder of nearly 100 million people through the vehicle of communism. Communism is a wicked, wicked ideology. 100 million of all the communists, you think of East Europe, Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Vietnam, all of them, all these communist dictatorships, 100 million people. In 1848, Marx, along with his friend Frederick Engels, they published the Communist Manifesto, and in it, they painted their eschatological vision for the destruction of capitalism and freedom and anything remotely close to the Christian faith. Now, this piece of literature has influenced more people than any other piece of literature in history, second only to the Bible. Marx's philosophy was very, very simple. He said this, socialism cannot be brought into existence without revolution. Socialism cannot be brought into existence without revolution. And revolution was indeed the vision of the man whose demons poisoned him to the point of usurping anything close to individual liberty. This too is ironic given the life of Marx. In fact, his, his book, Capital, 
was a self-deceived concoction of plagiarism, outdated information, and a refusal to see or state the facts. Uh, I'll give you one example, and that should suffice. Marx wrote a chapter in that book essentially critiquing the working conditions of men in the capitalistic factories during the Industrial Revolution in England. He never once stepped into a factory. Never once. Never once visited a factory. In fact, much of the information he used was completely outdated, 5, 10, and sometimes even 20 years uh, at the time of his writing. Um, capitalism was on the rise, industrial revolution was booming, and most certainly they have self-corrected many of those problems. And why does that happen? If you don't correct the problems, you're not in business, and you lose, and you don't have any money, you don't have any employees, and things go south. So it benefits people like um, Coca-Cola, I read. They, they, a few years back, figured out a way to use less aluminum but still have a good product in their cans. Now, why would they do that? The government didn't tell them to do that. <laughs> they did it because they're trying to be efficient. Because if you're not efficient, you don't have a business, you don't make money, and you're out. So, back to Marx. Speaking of his complete and utter hypocrisy, his own mother, who he had a sour relationship with his family, but his own mother poked a hole in his entire philosophy when she wished that, quote, Carl would accumulate capital instead of just writing about it, end quote. <laughs> so it's well known and established that Marx's personality was completely devoid and defunct of integrity. So how, how does someone like him, and he ended up moving from Germany to London later, um, in the middle of his life, I think, if my dates are correct, but how does somebody like this guy impact the world, impact it in such a degree that's just astounding, whose ideology, once implemented by Stalin, led to millions of deaths. How does that happen? Well, the answer has several layers, and we'll, we'll start with this. The first layer is vision. Vision. We know that despite the troubles outlined above, the man whose liver had always given problems his entire life, he could see the man could see. He was a troubled revolutionary whose anger and strife and lack of self-control fueled the fire for covetousness and greed. He hated the success of people around him. In fact, his uncle would go on to um, invent or and lead to the, the Phillips um, Electrical Company. He wanted to bum money off him too. He was always bumming money off people. Couldn't make it himself, but he would just try to get some, and then he'd squander it. That's Marx. So how does a man do that? Well, his vision. He could see. His, his greed, his covetousness, had built this sort of vision, this eschatological vision for the future, of what things could be like if the proletariat would overtake the bourgeoisie and, and social class warfare would end because all, this, all these things would pan out. Listen, only when a person is completely bereft of integrity and self-government under God, can he come up with this eschatological vision of mass destruction? In fact, Marx wrote poetry early in his life, and he would spend time visioning these things on fire and this sort of revolutionary happenings in society. And boy, were these visions of mass destruction very much large. See, make no mistake, Marx had a vision for the future. Marx had a vision for the future, which incidentally cannot be said of the modern church. Marx had a vision, at least he had a vision. The church today doesn't have any vision. They don't see because they rejected God's law word. 
So on one level, sin and rebellion are the seeds of humanism. Sin and rebellion are the seeds of humanism. And this goes all the way back to the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden when they wanted to know and determine good and evil for themselves. But on another level, it isn't merely just a a metaphysical thing. Those seeds that were planted in the anti-Semitic heart of Marx sprouted forth into a comprehensive all-of-life vision for society. And thus it produced the politics of fallen man, what we call socialism. Now, before we unpack that dangerous doctrine some more, I want to look at the text before us and give you some biblical grounding here. Exodus 20, verse 15, it says, You shall not steal. You shall not. Thou shalt not steal. The word steal means to take something, right? To take by stealth or to take something or remove something secretly without the knowledge of the person who possesses it. That's the idea. Implicit within this command is the notion of private property. So for someone to steal something means to remove a possession from someone, yes, and it logically follows then that the thing possessed had a rightful owner. There was somebody that had something that belonged to them, but someone had taken it. So what what we call the negativism of the law, that's don't steal. That's the negative command, right? Do not steal. However, there, as is the case with biblical law, there's a positive aspect to it, the positivism of the law. Rush Jenny writes about that in his institutes. The positivism of the law of, of this is simple. Acknowledge and respect private property. Very simple. Acknowledge that something belongs to someone and respect that. So don't take it, but it, not only don't take it, acknowledge that it belongs to somebody. You know, generate wealth and support others voluntarily in the process. That's what Matt read from Ephesians 4, right? Don't steal. In fact, get to work so you can help somebody else who's in need. So we might even say that implicit within this law is the notion of freely giving to those in need. There are massive implications for this one verse in the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment. Now, the Bible lays out a vision for private property when it says things like in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The Bible also says in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, it says this, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So what is explicit throughout the entirety of the Bible is is the fact that God grants dominion to man. That's what he gives to man. But one thing God does not grant is ultimate sovereignty. So the the ultimate owner, the ultimate landlord of, of all the property on earth is who? God. God created it all. Right, kids? You should know that. Everything, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's. Everything is His. The tree outside is God's property. He owns it. He made it. It's His. But this, this exercise, though, of, all, of ultimate sovereignty that belongs to God, that is not given to man. Man is not permitted to do that. Right? In short, man, man is given private property and jurisdiction over material things from the hand of God who owns it all. I'll say that again. Man is given private property and jurisdiction over material things from the hand of God who owns it all. So this is what we can call a derivative sovereignty, or what we might call this sovereignty of material stewardship under God. 
So we're given the earth. We're told to do something with it. It belongs to God. And you only own something to the degree that God grants it to you. So the earth is the Lord's. This is true. But it's given to us to steward and subdue, to work and to keep, and to build the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So in Christian theology, labor and work is tied to our responsibility before God. So next time you go to your job and you're having a bad day, remember that that's a task that God has given you to glorify Him with, to work. So, so we work not as a punishment for sin. We work because this was God's intention all along, to fill the earth and subdue it. All of which is to say this. Private property is a doctrine that is derived from the Bible and the mind of God. It is a thing. Private property. It's a real concept, and anytime anyone gets it right out in the real world, whether they acknowledge God or not, it's only because of the Christian worldview. Private property is a thing because of the Christian worldview. Now, theft, which is a sin, right? It is a violation of God's law order. It isn't just a transaction between people. That does happen between men. It's a sin against God. We forget that sometimes when we steal something, right? Children, maybe we take our brother or sister's toy without acknowledging that it's their property. And we sort of pretend that we didn't do it, but we did it. And, and now we're caught. You have to know that that's not just an offense against your sibling. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against God. We're to respect people's property. We're to, we're to steward it and treat it well. So it's not just a transaction between men, it's a sin against God. So God demands that we treat one another with respect and dignity. And this is done in all our relationships when we don't steal things from each other. Now listen very carefully. There is never going to be a justifiable doctrine or political philosophy that can possibly overturn the Eighth Commandment regardless of what man says. Okay, so we cannot rationalize our way into violating this commandment thinking things like this. Well, I needed this particular thing more than they did. That's the covetousness, right? The greed, the the desire for something. Well, I needed it more than they did, so it's okay that I stole it. We can't justify the violation of this commandment by saying things like, well, if the state does it, it's okay. Remember when you get your first check and there's the FICA? Who's FICA? I didn't know I was supporting FICA. That's the government. (laughs) So we can't rationalize this by saying, well, God's word we know says don't steal. But if the IRS does it, it's fine. Internal revenue service, right? Because, you know, internal plunder service was a little too obvious. See, God's sovereignty and the administration of his law word demands that his law take precedent and priority over everything else. We take God's law very seriously here at Cross and Crown. The only, the only legitimate way in the Bible to earn wealth, the, there's only really three categories. You work for it, it's inherited, it's inheritance, or someone gives it to you as a gift. Other than that, anything outside of that is theft. And notice none of those have the IRS qualifications there. They didn't work for it. They didn't inherit it. And it's not a gift. We did not give that to them. They stole it from us. So we are called to to work, right? We're called to labor, to the dominion mandate. And we cannot circumvent this calling by stealing from others. And that's where socialism comes in. Now, 
let's talk about this doctrine a little bit more. You've seen the biblical understanding, some of the grounding there, and there's more that could be said. But I want you to see more of the socialistic stuff that's out there. It's no secret that the first plank in the Communist Manifesto is this, quote, the abolition of private property in land and application of all rents of land to public purpose, end quote. What that means is no more private property. None of it. In order for Marx to achieve his eschatological vision for, for a dictatorship, which is in the hands of the proletariat, the working class, right, he had to get rid of the most foundational element of a free society under God, private property. There's a reason that's number one on the list. No more, pri- no more property. There's property, but it's all in the hands of the state. No individual can own property. So once Marx could seize all the land, he could then carry out the rest of his agenda. Heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Abolition of all rights of inheritance. Confiscation of the property of all immigrants and and rebels. Um, He would go on in the manifesto. Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of the national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly on, on the banking industry. Centralization of the means of communication and transportation in the hands of the state. Grow the state's ownership of factories and the means of production. Um, Equal obligation of all to work and the establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. You combine agriculture and manufacturing industries and you get rid of the distinction between towns and countries and then you distribute people evenly throughout. And lastly, the 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto, free education in government schools. Can't leave that out. The Ten Commandments of Marxism, the Communist Manifesto. So if I, if I said all of those things without telling you that this was the genius, well, ingenious, right, of Marx and Engels, you'd probably think I was talking about America. Well, guess what? What's the conclusion? America is a socialist country, and America doesn't care. According to Hayek in his book there, Socialism means the abolition of private enterprise, of private ownership of the means of production, and the creation of a system of planned economy in which the entrepreneur working for profit is replaced by a central planning body. Notice that. The abolition of private property, private enterprise, you are not free to make your own company. The government, the central planning body, will tell you what you're allowed to do. See, socialism itself began with sort of that much simpler definition, and it was basically this, government ownership of the means of production. So how do you produce goods and products and so on through businesses and agriculture and all these things? How do you do that? Well, the government does it. So that's kind of the simple definition. But Hayek, he actually nuances in his book that the definition, once, it hit, once we hit the 20th century, is shifted a bit. And now he he says it means the redistribution of income in pursuit of equality, not through government ownership of labor and means of production per se, but through institutions of the welfare state and the progressive income tax. Notice the shift. We can't just take all the factories and take all the farmers and take all the land and force you into government schools. We can't do that. We can do that in sort of in a backdoor way. We'll do the government school thing. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks, I think, the education thing. 
But what they decided to do was create the, wealth, the monstrosity of the welfare state. And the only way you have money is to tax the garbage out of people. And so now all of us sitting in this room have to work a third of our year just to pay our taxes. We, we work for the government roughly a, a third of the year. So in other words, all of this, the goal has always been this elusive equality, right? But the means have shifted. We have to have equality. The rich, they are too rich. They can't have all the money. We need to level things out. Everybody should be equal. That's socialism. Or as Orwell put it in Animal Farm, you may remember this, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. (laughs) It is ironic that the socialist vision for equality is anything but equality especially when it comes to progressive income tax, right? We, um, America, we have tinkered with the socialist practice of income tax since 1913. We've had 100 years of it in our nation. But it's interesting when you hear the language of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, well, the rich have to pay their fair share. Their fair share. Who determines what's fair? The central planning body, the socialist elites who are more equal than the rest of us. So socialism is the politic of fallen man. It's the politics of fallen man. It's the political choice for men who are in rebellion to God because this this is why. Socialism is the answer to man's quest to build a social order on his religious presuppositions. There's no God, therefore we need to create this whole thing for ourselves. And I'll I'll say it in, in different words here. Humanism as a philosophy doesn't do anything to build a social order. It's just sort of ideas that are out there in the university, right? So there's no vision or practical purpose in these ethereal concepts. There's no practical day-to-day dealing with the economics and law and order. So for the humanists to come up with some sort of vision for society based on those presuppositions Guess what? He has to look to socialism. And here's why. This is why it always ends this way. I I mentioned a a bit ago the problem of the one and the many. So in philosophy, there's always this tension between the individual and the collective. What's their relationship? Does the individual have rights or does the collective take precedence? That's the tension. This is the bottom line tension in in all of this. So what, what is most important, the individual or the group? Does the individual matter 20% of the time and the collective 80% of the time? Do we tinker with it? Does does the collective matter at all? Should we just not even have a nation called America and we don't have any of those things? We just sort of are people that live on this continent, whatever we call it. What is the the relationship? And here's, here's why this goes the way it does. As Christians who understand God has revealed himself through us or excuse me, to us in Christ through his word, we know that we're the only ones who can solve this problem. The the Kavanaugh problem, the Supreme Court problem, all of this stuff, Christians are the only ones that can have the answer. But there's not many people talking about it. (laughs) In fact, we're not supposed to talk about Kavanaugh on Sunday. That's wrong, as some Christians would suggest. So there's no way to solve the problem apart from the Christian worldview. But guess what? The humanist is quite belligerent. He's not going to not try. He's going to try something. So the problem, the one, one of the many, isn't really solved by the humanist. Guess what? He eliminates one. He gets rid of the one. 
There's no need for the individual liberty. There's no need for it. Why do we, why, we can't reconcile them, so we'll just ax the one and emphasize the other. So statism and thus socialism erroneously overemphasizes the collective all at the expense of the individual. So the whole socialist scheme centralizes everything. So everything is done by central planning. Bureaucrats sitting in a room where the law doesn't apply, sort of like our senators who don't have to get Obamacare, they, have, they, you know, they get the exemption. They get to decide these things. They're the central body, and what they say goes. So everything is done by centralized planning. The elite group on top, they're the ones more equal than others, right? They dictate to the rest of us at the bottom what central planning and goals are going to be. So the humanist, the humanist has to do this in order to carry out the vision for the future. And Marx had to cut at the foundation of property rights granted from God in order to see this revolution take place. See, we know that all material things come from the hands of God, right? We have, Paul says, what, did you ha- what do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. The breath in your lungs is a gift. Nothing. So thus, the, everything that we, that's given or earned by us or to us is from God's gracious hand. So if we start here, this is the socialist mindset. If we start here, we can start with the abolition of this very concept of God's ownership and our derivative ownership. We'll get rid of that, and then we can get on in imposing our collectivist vision. You see, people are induced to steal the goods and possessions of others because they don't trust God, and therefore they pollute themselves with greed and covetousness. When a man like Bernie Sanders stands up, a presidential candidate, and says that you have to pay your, pay your fair share, and we're going to give free, free, free everything. Everything's free. Free education, free college, free community college. We're, gonna get, we're just going to crank out diplomas. They're free. You should immediately be triggered. And you should know, hey, nothing's free. You should then say, well, who's going to pay for that? And then three, you should say, you're a fool. (laughs) You can't, you're you're a covetousness person filled with greed. See, Marx hated capitalism and anything related to it, especially the Jews. He hated Jews. So what must he do? He must take from them. See, in his lust, he must take from them and he must break the Eighth Commandment. See, this is, that's the core of the socialist agenda. It's theft. Mm-hmm. See, we joke a lot about, you know, taxation is theft. Ha, ha, ha. No, it is. It is. See, the, the socialist mantra, the greatest good for the greatest number of people is nothing more than a smoke and mirrors sloganeering. Whether it's the fascism of Benito Mussolini in Italy, uh, the communism of Stalin and Lenin in Russia, and Soviet Russia, or even German fascism, which arrived in full swing with Hitler, the common denominator in all of it is this. Individuals can and should be sacrificed for the greater good of the collective. In fact, that was a saying of Hitler's National Socialist Party. Individuals should be sacrificed for the greater good of the collective. See, the solution for Marx and other like him was to simply remove the individual from the equation. Get rid of the individual. This is why the Jews that were in ghettos and concentration camps were given numbers instead of names. When we were at the Holocaust Museum yesterday, they had pictures of tattoos, and they were all given a number. Why do you do that? Well, you dehumanize them. You give them a number. They don't have a name. They don't have an identity. 
They're just a number. They're expendable. You see, man was created to be free. Man was created to be free. But this freedom, this liberty, could only be exercised and ascertained by man in subordination to God. So the only true freedom and liberty a man can possess is that which is in service and obedience to God. If you want freedom in your life, you have to serve God and obey God. That's where it's found. So because of that, paganism will always need statism. It will always need the collective through the means of socialism to control individuals. And pagan man can never actually be free because pagan man will only submit himself to this self-created Godhead, this self-created social order himself. See, all unbiblical thinking, all unbiblical thinking will result in the collective taking precedent over the individual. Always. That's why Hillary Clinton can say, I forget in one of her books, that children are basically the property of the state. There are kids. She says, there are kids. Why? What is she saying? Parents, you have no rights over your children. They belong to the state. It's socialism. That's what it is. And it's always going to end that way. It's always going to be the sacrifice of the family, the individual, over against the precedent for the, for the collective. And all socialists say these things because that's part of the scheme. See, and, and what we must do as Christians, we must insist at every turn, at every turn, we must insist on individual liberty. We have to. The minute we start to give, Christians are doing, have done this. That's why the whole Kavanaugh thing is so disappointing. They've done it with the, the whole pro-life movement has done that. Slight compromise, slight compromise, slight compromise. And suddenly, here we are, 40 plus years later, we still are killing our children in the womb. That's what we do. That's a socialist ideology. And I'll tell you this much. For us to insist on individual liberty at every single turn, it's going to be hard to do because socialism has run through just about everything in our country. From public schools and excessive taxation to the inheritance tax. You think of um, price controls. Minimum wage laws, which do nothing but make people poorer and poorer. All of these things, socialism is here and it will not go away in our country without a Christian vision for a coherent social order based on God's law and God's prescription for individual liberty. See, socialism is is a dangerous doctrine from the political and religious convictions of humanism and it is out there and it is everywhere. This cradle-to-grave security that's offered by the state. You can't even die in this country without being taxed. See, socialism, socialism destroys entrepreneurial ingenuity, technological advancement, and economic improvement. Why? Because it robs man of the incentive to fulfill the dominion calling God has placed upon him. See, everything socialism has touched, it has absolutely destroyed. So there are no redeeming qualities. None at all. And thus, it's completely and entirely incompatible with the Christian faith. So none of us should sit in here and say things like, well, I'm okay with just a little bit of taxation, because then they're going to do that, and then they're going to hit you somewhere else. And then you're not going to be able to fight, because you've already compromised your principles. 
And unfortunately, that's what the Christian church has done today, compromised on its principles, the principles of God's law. We have compromised on it, and thus we have very much a socialist, fascist, borderline communist country. See, entrepreneurship and and technological advance can only come from the hands of a man who not only believes himself to be free, but is free to explore the world that God has created. Listen, you don't get the iPhone from a tyrannical, totalitarian regime who wants to control and dictate not only the labor of a man, but the vision of a man, the purpose of a man. So we have to fight against it. We must not participate in the socialistic schemes of modern America. We have to refrain from, as a friend of ours, Dr. Joel McDermott says, don't take the government cheese. Don't take the cheese. It's a trap. You'll lose a finger. Don't take it. Once you start taking it, you're going to end up with all of it. So don't take the government cheese and, and free education and all free, 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 free. We have to be diligent in getting this message to the masses. And honestly, it has to start here locally. There's so much work to be done to combat this ginormous problem. And so we must be praying, yes, and we must be fighting, absolutely. And we must not see this as secondary. That's not a, that's not a gospel issue. Why are you talking about socialism? This is a Christian pulpit. You're supposed to just teach sound doctrine. Well, that was sound doctrine. It's not secondary. This is primary because the gospel of the kingdom of God is entirely opposed to socialism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to everything, including the injustice we see all around us. We ask and pray that you would help us as a community to fight against the paganism around us, including the paganism of the socialist dream. We know that it is imperative for us to preach the gospel, and we also know that it is the gospel of the kingdom, which means that the kingdoms of men must be abolished. So we ask, Spirit, that you would give us wisdom beyond our years, knowledge beyond what we have today. Grow us and mature us so that we can be about the business of your son's great footstooling of the nations. We ask all of this in our King's name, Christ's name, our Lord. Amen.